Welcome to Private Equity Laid Bare, the podcast. I'm your host, Ludovic Fadipu, and I am going to talk to you about family offices today with Rosaline Bridi, our guest. Um, Rosaline, uh, thank you so much for accepting uh, the invitation today. And please tell us a bit about what your job is about, what you do in life, and a bit about yourself. Yes, of course, Ludo. Uh, well, I'm a partner in the law firm. Um, I advise family offices financial services firms and fintech companies. I advise on equity raising corporate transactions, financial services regulation, as well as on strategy and governance. And I often sit on the board of my clients where requested. So, so, so concretely, like an example of, of, of a transaction would be like you have a family office that comes to you, they want to invest in, I don't know, uh, a building somewhere, uh, a shopping mall, and then you would, do the legal work for them and then maybe sit on the board to to represent them in this transaction yeah that's exactly right okay um well maybe we should start by defining what is a family office um am i a family office i i have a family and and i have an office um (laughs) and i have some money that i'm investing so does does that make me a family office well there isn't a strict definition of what a family office is but what people tend to mean um, by family office is effectively private investors who have large pools of capital and they look to make um, investments either into funds or um, directly into companies and as you say um, buildings and 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 they differ um, um, across the world because um, you know family offices have come to investing from different perspectives you might have some families who've owned family businesses and you know some good examples of that would be in Germany where you have the Mittelstand. You may have some examples of um, US tech entrepreneurs who've uh, more lately come into money and you may have examples of um, um, Asia Pacific billionaires um, who have owned a franchise. Okay. And, um, and so the main investments they do would be mainly like, so private equity is a big deal for them. Is it like a big investment for them? Because they tend to be much smaller than institutional investor in that space. Yes, that's because um, typically a family office would allocate only between 5 to 10% of, the, um, of their strategic asset allocation. And um, so, if, for example, if you're worth 100 million, you know, that would mean an investment of five to 10 million. That's why family offices often look like smaller investors. And the reason why they only allocate a small proportion of their asset allocation to private equity is because um, private equity ties up capital for a long period of time. As you know, the average fund life is between five to seven years. And it's not always clear um, when drawdowns will be made. And if you're a private investor, um, that can lead to a very inefficient use of capital um, because clearly you don't have lots of money sitting in the bank account doing nothing. <laughs> and so does it mean that family offices are less keen to invest in private equity via funds and for them it is much more natural to look for direct investments? Yeah, they definitely prefer direct investments, I, I find, where the families that I work with, because they like the control. Um, they also 
perceive that they have an edge with direct investments. Um, they don't have the same time horizons as a typical private equity fund. They can be much more long-term um, and much more patient. Um, they can add a lot more. Um, they can act as directors. They can introduce their network. Um, they often have sector knowledge. They, they feel that they have the edge um, investing directly. And very often, they're willing to look at asset classes at an earlier stage than the average private equity fund. So, that would be like the, the angels and yeah. archangels and super angels. It, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and also, you know, they're, they're quite adventurous. You know, you know, for example, the vaccine um, that's been used for COVID, that was you know, initially founded by a lot of um, family offices. Um, yeah, so, there was this woman who's like this this singer in the US or something, right? Dolly or something like that. Like, yeah. she was... well, I think the thing is um, they're willing to take risks, not always wisely, <laughs> that some of the funds aren't. But so there, there were quite a few things that you said there that are, that are quite important. So because at first you said, well, they don't really want funds because they don't want to have a cash sitting on the side and yeah. and you know sending cash on demand to these funds. Yeah. But if they invest directly, you also kind of need to do that. So the fund would make 10 investments and we'd call the money over the next five years as they find these 10 investments. Yeah. But if you have a family office and you want to make 10 direct investments, you also need to keep the money on the side at the bank for five years until you find each of these investments. So isn't it yeah. the problem a bit the same? Well, no, you're, you're right. Because a lot of people who do early stage investments don't really appreciate that. So they put the money at the um, outset and don't realize that they need to continue to follow on with their investments. Um, but it's very different investing at that early stage because you end up having a lot more control. And because you control more of the share cap table, um, you get to see a lot more information about what's going on in the company. You know when it's coming to a, um, a cash crunch and there's always debt financing. There are other ways of raising capital and you're much more hands-on as an investor. So um, although you may have um, ongoing capital calls, um, you probably know about them earlier and also can probably do other things about them as well. Yeah, but like, so, so it's a good point with liquidity management because, you, you know, if I think of a family office, you know, mm -hmm. people would, would have a fixed amount of wealth. Usually they don't have a huge flow. Sometimes they do, but, but, but usually it's a stock that is bigger than, than the flows. Mm -hmm. So what feels more, most appropriate then as an investment on the liquidity front would be, you know, a shopping mall, buildings, infrastructure, these sorts of things, real assets, what we call real assets, because then, you know, you invest once and, and you leave it. So it wouldn't even be like greenfield, it would be brownfield infrastructure and the like. But if you are going to do early stage, like you said, you know, like you invest a small amount in a company, this company is doing well, the next rounds, you need to put quite a lot of money in there. And yeah. if your money has already been invested, you know, you're not going to be able to like find easily these large amounts of money. So it doesn't mean that then you have to give up on your company pretty early on to venture capitalists and the like. And so you are, you know, forced to stay at these very, very early stage companies and let them go pretty early in their development when they work. Well, well, it depends. Well. You're, you're absolutely right. There are many, many families who invest in real estate assets and, and that is where the bulk of the investment is. And, and they're doing that to get a, you know, a, a regular return in the yield and they understand the risk profile that they've taken. Um, I guess the area that I'm particularly interested in is the early stage though, because um, done correctly, the rewards are immense. And also what tends to happen if you invest in, in those early stage companies, you know, those opportunities come to the people who are recognized in that field. 
and they can um, put more capital in or get um, other people in their network to contribute capital um, and to use debt quite effectively. And you're right, you may well sell out to a private equity fund at a later stage, but you know, if you've been smart, you can sell out at a very good evaluation and then sometimes people can continue all the way. So, so is, yeah, is it that a lot more than people realize. Is it that the returns are really that good early stage yeah. or is it just that it is a lot more exciting? Because I think the exciting factor is playing a big role in, in, in a lot of these investments <laughs> that, you know, if I, if I tell you, you know, I'm interested in, in, in something, yeah. you know, some infrastructure in, 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 in England that does water or whatever, um, I think you would, you would, you would yawn. Uh, if I tell you I want to invest in some fintech in, in, uh, in Amsterdam, in Scandinavia, you'd probably be a lot more excited. So you have this excitement factor that comes maybe in, in cloud a bit, the attractiveness of a given type of investment. No, you're absolutely it? right. Uh, it, it, there is so much danger in, in this type of investing because people um, think they know more than they really do. Um, but the reality is I've been involved with a family and, and one of the investments that they made was into Google at the very, very early stage, and that made them much more money <laughs> than pretty much anything else they did. So, um, yeah, I mean, they do it with caution, but I think um, the other reason why family offices are interested in this type of investing is because they do have the edge over the funds, and whereas in more of the bigger ticket investments, um, it's more difficult for them because they're competing with institutional investors who regularly invest large tickets and get very attractive co-investment and side deals, which sometimes the family office investors um, are not offered. Uh, yeah, so that's quite important. So if they go to invest in funds as they are smaller, yeah. they wouldn't be get treated the same way as the big exactly. guys, and so they would be at a disadvantage. Yeah. And so, but when you do direct, usually when people think about direct, they think about the Canadian model of investing. So they think of CPPIB and, and, and its followers. So they think about people who can go big, right? The idea is that if you go direct, you need to be pretty big because you need to have like 100 investments to be diversified. To make 100 investments, you need to have a very large amounts of money. And the, the type of investor, CPPIB, that has popularized the going direct is super large. And, and, and puts that as the number one reason. So does that mean that then family offices are also pushed towards very small tickets if they want to go direct? And so then they, if you go towards small tickets, it means it's more niche companies, small companies, like you said, a bit early stage, et cetera. Yeah. And so you need to have quite some knowledge then of, yes. of that sector because it's like a non-small companies. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, sh I should have made that point earlier. You know, if we're going to do this type of investing, it's because you've got some kind of inside edge. You know, you are a sector specialist. You might have very good connections. Um, sometimes what I see um, family um, offices have come from a family business, which is a leader in that sector. And they might be seeing it a little bit like you see with pharmaceutical companies when you're buying early stages R&D. You know, you've got to have some other kind of strategic imperative to make that work. You can't just throw you know, coins at lots of companies and hope it works. You're absolutely right. Yeah, that. so it's interesting. This is a allocation issue of family offices because it means that you know, what we, you know, the textbook will say, you know, you take the mean variance and, you know, you take the, the expected returns on different asset classes and you decide on a portfolio this way. For family office, it feels much more like, well, there are some things that are much more natural for you. Um, of course, investing in public equity is relatively natural, et cetera. But what is natural for you is usually you made your money in a given sector, you have yeah. a sector expertise. Yeah. So then why don't you act as an angel in that sector? Yeah. Because then you have, a, a, a edge there 
or or you have and, and that you wouldn't find like you know a patient fund or small endowment yeah the people working there are people you know straight out of school or exactly. just investing in investment over life they don't really have a particular sector knowledge not an insider knowledge no like a family would have yeah and then there's an additional advantage as well is that if you are involved in a sector where you're trying to buy businesses from um, owner managers or entrepreneurs, um, you know, very often family offices and family businesses, again, have an edge because they understand what it's like for that um, seller to sell that business. And uh, they understand, you know, what it's like to employ lots of people. And they understand about incentivizing employees because they've run big businesses themselves. And they're often um, um, willing to take um, a, a much more strategic view about incentivizing the management team. Um, so they can be very popular uh, people to sell to. It, because, because then, like, if you're, if you're an entrepreneur and then you would have, like, a family office offering you money versus like a small venture capital fund, you may yeah. say, well, I prefer a family office because exactly. these guys have actually themselves run businesses well and so on. And so I have yeah. more confidence with that. And they're more available as well. And you know, it's very lonely being an entrepreneur. And, um, you know, sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and you've got, you know, a burning issue. Uh, you know, and it's, sometimes it's easier to ring up the person who has sold a business in that sector. And yeah, they just bring different things to the table. That's cool. Um, but but you're not a financial advisor, right? In these transactions. So what you do as as, as a lawyer is that you you review all the documents and make sure that the contracts they sign are fair and so on, yeah. right? But but yeah. if they get too excited about something, or you know you you may do you also tell them, well, be careful because I'm not sure you know as much as you think you know, or you yeah, stay yeah. away from that and just yeah. legally just do the legal review. No 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 no. Um, I think people come to me because they want my judgment and. Um, and, and, and don't forget, it's not just the family offices and the inheritors of wealth. It can be the professional trustees. I always think that it's difficult being a professional trustee when you have a, a family office who want to do quite um, innovative investing because, you know, as a professional trustee, you know, you might have a duty to the other beneficiaries, you know, not to lose capital or, you know, take unnecessary risks. So, yes, you're right. As a lawyer, we... Um, we get asked um, not just what the contract says, but um, what are the kinds of risks associated with this type of investing? And we and, and, and we're also very heavily um, involved in the due diligence. So checking that the business that we're looking at actually owns the assets that it says it does, um, checking that there's not fraud, um, checking that the um, the statements that are said about the business are correct, working very closely with the accountants to make sure that the numbers are correct. That's that's really that's really cool. It's indeed a lot of 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 work, and we may not uh, think of of a lawyer uh, doing such a, a breath of 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 work. Um, the, the, the one question I had though, uh, when when you were describing the the fact that you know this family have made their fortunes often in a given sector, and then would have an edge uh, to invest again in that sector, supporting young entrepreneurs in that sector. Finance one one when we, we teach it. We say, you know, you need to be diversified. That's like the only free lunch in finance. Yeah. So if your family fortune comes from one sector, 
Uh, the last thing you should do is invest in the same sector. Okay. You should try to find something that is yeah. like negatively well, correlated to that sector. Yeah. Well, um, I think, so, I, so you may want to be careful, right? It's like buying your own company stock is like, it, it might not be the wisest financial decision. Well, 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 well I, I should be sort of slightly clearer. They don't put all their money in the same sector. So um, what they would do is they typically split their portfolio. And so they would put part of their portfolio in a sort of wealth preservation strategy um, where you know you want to get a little bit of yield but you don't want to take risk and you don't want to lose huge amounts of capital and then they would separate um, a, 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 a section of their portfolio to say well okay where can I put my big bets you know what am I interested in what do I want to do why do you have money you know it, it, at the end of the day they want to do things that they're interested in and they think that they add value and from an investment philosophy perspective I mean you have to look at um, you know Warren Buffett you know he takes big long-term bets in companies that he likes and so um, obviously they're diversified but the families in my scenario will diversify by giving part of their portfolio to a professional wealth manager. Okay, but that's, that's clear. Um, is there, if, 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 you, if somebody is to pitch to a family office, right, so imagine that I have a company and I'm looking to raise capital, I have an investment product, you know, I'm selling something and I want to pitch to a family office. Is there anything I, I need to know? Is there like a to do and, and don'ts like that, that people sometimes miss or don't completely realize like that would be, you know, different from to, to, to endowments or the like? Is there something special yeah, about I, family I, offices? I, always, I understand they're all different, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's the key. Do your homework. So I, you know, I've seen many people coming to a room and you know, I guess some of it is partly nervousness and start talking about what they have to offer and what they do and what their performance is like and all the rest of it. And they forget to ask the very basic questions is, you know, why is the other person sitting across the table? You know, what interested them? Why did they take the call? They don't take many calls. So, you know, if you're in the room, you've done pretty well already. And, um, and if you fail to ask the questions at the outset, you may make a very big mistake. So, and, and you, and it, yeah, so I think it's going with an open mind, listen more than you speak and um, understand the answers and, and, and don't try and pull the wool over people's eyes. You know, okay. And so, but, so it's a bit like know your client yeah. type of thing, but, and, but, but that we say it also for endowments and, and, and the like. So in anything that will be more special to, to family offices um, or, or they are just like endowment, like you just need to know your client well. And that's well, it. I, I think the, the difference is that you have many stakeholders in a family office. So with an endowment, you'll have a professional staff, you'll know what their investment strategy is and how they operate. With a family, you might have a professional staff and have, and have that same approach, but you may also have a founder who comes to the meeting and just doesn't like you. <laughs> you know, there's the sort of personal element. And um, so it can be a little bit quirky. Okay, so that, that's interesting. So that, that would be indeed be very different, right? So. So because an endowment, you can check their website, they're on your reports, they tell you how they invest, what is their philosophy, etc. Yeah. So you can easily do your homework. Here with a family office, you know, you might have observed some previous investments, but then you have these founders and sometimes a group of them, it can be like, you know, brothers and sisters and, yeah. you know, they may not even get along with, <laughs> with one another very well. And then and you also- need to like not upset them and because they have a key people. Yeah, and the other thing to be very aware of is because we're going through the biggest intergenerational transfer of wealth, you may have built a relationship with um, the founding um, 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 
um, partner, but then find that um, you know, the wealth is being transferred to the next generation and so you've got another group of stakeholders. So I think that would be my other piece of advice is really do some um, analysis on who the family are, what their background is, you know, are they going through a, a transfer or have they you know, already done that? And um, also, um, what are the aspirations of the other key stakeholders? And um, yeah, I think it's just do your homework. Yeah, but it's not that easy because the information is usually kept quite secret, right? They have even less information on their website than the average endowment. Yeah, well, I think it's not just about looking at the websites. You can, many of these big families, you know, if you use Google, you can do your due diligence and, and find out, you know, there'll be news reports and stories. And, and, and also, you've got to be curious and interested in people. And, and actually, you can ask questions. You know, very often, you know, you ask the right question, you get the answer. And I think, you know, people realize you're asking, you know, for a serious reason that, you know, you want to be long-term partners with them and you need to understand them as much as they need to understand you. It feels like very much, yeah, cultural and then how to then break in. And, and then it's, it's always a bit, I always have this fear that then it may not be very inclusive. Like it would be like an in-between, you know, it's like the same type of people pitching to the same type of people because only that same type of people would be, you know, friends with the guys who are the oh, ultimate no, decision no, makers. I, and I so it, it feels very uh, incestuous. Well, yeah, I can see why you say that, but it's actually not true. Uh, it's, 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 I think it's hard to break in because, you know, it's difficult to trust someone that you don't know. So I think if you can be introduced um, by someone who is trusted, and that might be the lawyer, it might be the accountant, it might be the trustee, um, um, it could be a friend, um, you know, once you've got the meeting, you know, you've done tremendously well because it's the most hardest thing in the world is to get the meeting. Um, and thereafter, it's to take the time, like any relationship, getting to know the other person. And they're often, one of the reasons why I like working with family officers, they're often the most open-minded people in the world. And, um, and whereas in the private equity industry, um, there's a lot of constraints about how things work. That's not the case with family offices. Okay. Excellent. Um, and for, for people who are thinking, you know, uh, MBA students or like people that are looking at the job market, anything that they would need to know, be careful of if they want to apply to family offices, what, what kind of jobs are out there for them to do? Um, yeah. what, what's there on the job market side? Uh, well, there's lots of jobs, pretty much all the jobs that you would do in the private equity firm, you know, being an analyst um, or, you know, more senior being a chief investment officer or doing deals and transactions. I think the key thing to think about is more the remuneration and how that works. I think there's more flexibility because, you know, as I say, there aren't any rules and, and then you've just got to think you know, about what might make sense for you and for them. Um, is that a way to say that I would be paid more if I work for a family office? Is that the British way of saying it? Like, there's more flexibility, there's no rules, so well, it means you, like you, my well, pay can, can be anything? Well, you can, actually. Particularly if you're a younger private equity professional, you could probably do better than you would going to a traditional private equity firm because with a traditional private equity firm, you've obviously got the partners. And um, whereas if you're a young, bright private equity professional, particularly if you've got a couple of years under your belt, um, you know, family offices are crying out for people like that. And if you perform, you know, they can share that performance with you and they might even put some capital on the table so that you can benefit from some of the investments. 
Excellent. That sounds amazing. So that's, that's, that's the ideal world for, for, for the students. I think it's a fun world. The most important thing is to do your due diligence in the family and make sure that you're comfortable with that family. And then to hire the right lawyer. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, uh, Rosaline, for, for, for being with us today and, and for all this advice and to explain to us what uh, the world of family offices is and how it differs from uh, other type of investors in private equity. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ludo. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you. This was uh, Family Offices Laid Bare. Don't forget to subscribe. Give it a five stars if you liked it. Don't rate it if you didn't. Um, congratulations on your acquisition of one more piece of knowledge. Ciao, ciao.